I never really was able to coalesce this into a cogent thought until um, someone said to me, you know, always keep an eye out for opportunity. And of course, that person who said that was none other than Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut, former International Space Station commander. And, you know, as he said that, I realized that, yeah, that's what I've been doing all along. Welcome to this Clean Bill of Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Galen Nuttall, and I am on a mission to help physicians across Canada lead more balanced and healthy lives. That's the voice of Dr. Shauna Pandya, who is an absolute rock star. She's a physician, she's an aquanaut, she's a scientist, she's an astronaut candidate. In 2022, she was named to the Explorers Club's 50 Explorers Changing the World, and she also practices medicine in rural Alberta. Now, the cool thing that Dr. Pandya is going to highlight in this episode is that along her journey, she has learned a ton about pursuing passion and creativity as a physician. And she's also going to share her insight into creating a life that is conducive to work-life balance. She also has a really interesting approach to resilience, a five-pillar philosophy that she also shares. So listen on in. Very excited about this show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Galen. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Yeah, no, I'm very excited. Definitely have been just seeing you on LinkedIn and different places and all the very cool things you're up to um, in general. And so... I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost is, um, well, it's funny, right before we hit record, we're talking about how you're uh, doing clinic yesterday, like, you know, clinic, but then if someone, if when I was, I was following you online, I know that you're up to um, exploration, uh, like astronaut, um, like you're doing stuff with VR and medicine, like you're up to so many different things. And so uh, I think it's very, uh, very fascinating what you're up to. Yeah, yeah, we I look forward to telling you all what I'm up to, um, what a day in my life is like, and, um, you know, kind of sharing what I've learned um, about optimizing balance uh, this hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because definitely, like, from the outside looking in, it seems like, I don't know, like, outside looking at your life, it's like, I don't know how you have time to do all this. So definitely, you've cracked the code in some way about how to get a lot done or how to have balance. And you seem looks like you're having fun while you're doing it, too. So definitely want to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of caffeine is involved. I'll say that up front. <laughs> Which might be a common denominator. I, I know several <laughs> physicians for whom caffeine is sort of what they're up to in life. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I had your quick bio in the intro, but I mean, you're um, you, you're working with space exploration, exploration in general. Um, you do martial arts, uh, physician, and I couldn't help but like when we were getting ready for this podcast, it reminded me of a meme of this doctor. And I like had to Google it because I couldn't quite remember the meme, but it was this guy. And he's, I think he's in the, must be American. It says like Johnny Kim by the age of 37 was an astronaut, a Navy SEAL and a Harvard doctor. And the guy who tweeted this was like, my worst nightmare would be if Johnny's mom and my mom were friends. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's, yeah, you know, Johnny Kim makes all of us feel like we need to do more with our lives. So uh, you're not alone. Um, I remember the day um, I heard about him because that was a 2016 astronaut selection and both the Canadian Space Agency and the and NASA were having their their selection at the same time. And so there were a bunch of us in a group and in Facebook were following this, you know, all of us had applied. And uh, someone was saying the day the selection was out, they're like, yeah, the new NASA class includes a mathematician, a Navy SEAL, a Harvard emergency physician. I was like, yeah, that's a diverse class. They're like, no, 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 that's just one guy. I was that's like, oh. that's Johnny. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Time to do, go, go do more with my life. So <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's like, is it like among your cousins or whoever, where it's like, yeah, sure, you became a doctor, but are you also an astronaut like Shauna or, you know, like whatever? <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, but that kind of just speaks to the power of the teammates, the crewmates, the colleagues mm-hmm. that I have. It's like they they all operate at this level. They are mm-hmm. all good at what they do, whether they're engineers or imaging scientists or world-class divers. And, you know, just being with them, um, you know, they they make you feel like they they you're one of them. You, they respect you for your expertise, but you also feel compelled and driven to do more and be more just by virtue of being lucky enough to hang out with and work with these people. Mm. yeah that makes a lot of sense like it it speaks a lot to like who you hang out with like i've heard a saying of like you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with so obviously if you're hanging out with people that are performing at a certain level it's a bit like okay like this is somewhat normal or like you know attainable yeah yeah you know it's and like that's exactly it like that first day of medical school i think a lot of listeners will be able to relate to this there's that imposter syndrome there's Mm. like gosh, well, that person was Olympian, that person won Shark Tank, uh, that person has her PhD in immunology. And those are all very real examples, by the way. So you're like, uh, I definitely snuck past in the admissions committee and two weeks in, they're going to realize their mistake and, you know, boot me out of med school. Um, there's there's definitely that real sentiment. And then when you go to the uh, scientist astronaut ground school uh, and you're meeting everyone with their incredible backgrounds, it's exactly that flashback. You're like, okay. Everyone here is incredible. <laughs> what am I doing here? And then you just realize um, my my strategy for imposter syndrome, because I think everyone, every single person I've met feels it is just, well, treat it as a growth opportunity. Okay, well, so what if it's a mistake? So what if I don't belong here? I'm just going to seize the day and grow into this opportunity because someone at some point thought, you know, I was a good fit for this. Mm-hmm. No, I love that you're diving in right into like, I totally agree. Like, I think everyone experiences a lot of different uh, things going on in the background, like imposter syndrome and like so many different things, like a rival fallacy of like, I thought things would be better than they are. And like, you know, kind of like that uh, imposter syndrome of like, I'm going to get found out. Like, I remember like, you know, when I started one of my first jobs, I remember thinking like, oh, someone's going to pull back the curtain and be like, wait, he doesn't belong here. Like he doesn't belong. He shouldn't be a part of this conversation or shouldn't be sitting at this table. Um, So yeah, so I love that you're talking about imposter syndrome. So I think one of the things that would be um, also very, I think, meaningful for uh, the audience to hear about is like, I mentioned to you before we hit record, like, so I interviewed my dad a number of episodes ago. And one of the things he said as a physician was he struggled to find um, outlets for creativity. And also as much as he had pursued some level of passion with his work, he also felt like there was like something missing of like, okay, like where can I see creativity and passion outside of my work or like in relation to my work? So I'd love to hear a bit about like, okay, what led you on this path to like do something quite unique, but then like, I mean, certainly it seems like, you know, you've, you've followed your passion and creativity in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's, it's so funny that um, you're referring to your dad, because as you said that, I kind of flash back to what my dad would tell me as a kid. And he's like, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And, mm-hmm. you know, as a kid, you're like, what do you mean? dad? <laughs> like, you don't really get it. And then, um, you know, you were talking about everything I do, um, clinical work, research, exploration, expeditions, working with commercial companies, advising commercial companies. Um, and the reason that I can do it all is I is several fold. I, I love what I do. Um, the creativity definitely comes into it, especially in emergency medicine. Like you're definitely always trying to solve mm. the problem. You feel like Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, you're like, what fits about this pattern? What doesn't? What is going on with this patient? Um, so enjoying that part of the work for sure. Um, and then, you know, the other part of it is a lot what I do. It's, you know, it, it definitely is a high pace. But for me, one of my biggest values and where the concordance is 
between my values and the way I live my life is freedom and exploration and control over my own schedule. So I do maintain full-time equivalents uh, as a physician. My clinical days will be Friday through Tuesday. I will typically do an entire weekend of 63 hours on call in the rural community at a time. So I'm covering the hospital, the inpatient, the emergency room, um, and then I'll go do a clinic on Tuesday. Um, and then I'll go do my other stuff, the research, the commercial work, um, the rest of the week. And that's a rhythm that works for me and working purely as a locum physician when it becomes too much, because it definitely does, especially in summer when it's trauma season, you're seeing the ATVs, the chainsaws, the cattle tramplings all come out. And those are all real examples, by the way. Um, you know, there's, you just say, take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to take a break now. I'm going to recharge. And also having good people that remind me that, yeah, you need to recharge um, who are in my life saying, okay, just take, take it down a notch is really important as well. Um, so for me, um, loving what I do, um, but also knowing that I have the freedom of, I choose to work this much. I, it's not that, oh my gosh, who's going to take over my patient panel or, oh my gosh, I'm trapped in a, this, this rotation, like have to, I'm contract. Mm -hmm. I, I choose to because it's fun for me. And um, so I think that's a huge part of you can work more than what the average standard work week is um, if you choose to. And also if you have an option for recharging both regularly and also, you know, at a greater level when when the demand arises. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that when I hear those real life examples, they sound like examples from Alberta. Is that where that's happening? <laughs> Rural Alberta, definitely. Um, yes, that's very on brand, yeah. especially the ATV part. Yeah, for sure. And then, yeah, like the big things I heard in there were um, like the flexibility. Like, I mean, you know, this this is what you've decided works for you, right? Like not like everyone has to like try to do all these things, but it's what works for you. And like you've got that. It sounds like some specific um, options to recharge to take it down a notch as you put it. And then also some people in your support group that might be there to step in and say, Hey, like maybe you should, uh, you know, slow down a little bit for a minute here. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So for examples of that, like, you know, my best friend, my mom, um, my really good friends and colleagues, like they will know my schedule and they'll be saying, that's, that's insane, you know, take a break or, you know, there's been literal times like the value of having that support system. Um, you know, I typically, when I, when I travel for exploration or for expeditions, obviously I'm not working clinically and I choose to, again, what make that up over the holidays, over Christmas, over new year's, because to me, that's a trade-off that's worth it. And there'll be times when my, my best friend has my schedule memorized and she'll be saying, what are you doing back in town? Aren't you supposed to be starting in this town at 8am? And you're like, no, that's not true. And then you double check your schedule. You're like, oh, she's right. Time to hit the road, right? Like you have you have these checks and balances who kind of keep you um, keep you on track and also say, you know, here, like you're you're doing too much versus or you know you're forgetting this or you know it just it's it's the value of having that support network. Mm -hmm. No, I think, and I mean, as you're saying that, I find it. I'm I'm really sitting here and wondering how many physicians I know have created a support network like that, because I think people in general are hesitant to ask for support or ask for help. And then I think physicians, there's also an element of, I feel like it's changed a bit, but I certainly like when my dad, you know, my dad's retired now, but like when he was up and coming in med school and stuff like that, it was, it was like the mindset was like, you, you don't admit any weakness. Like no. you don't admit that you don't know something like there's this very much like, uh, you know, sort of externally imposed 
I'm, I'm using this because I've heard other people use it, God syndrome. Um, so it's almost like, I mean, I would hope that people are more likely to do that. But yeah, I think I just wonder like how many physicians are taking on that. Like when you say that someone knows your schedule well enough to kind of point out that something might not work, like that's pretty amazing. Absolutely. And we should absolutely talk about how this culture um, that we grew up in medicine was definitely not a healthy culture. And it needs to, it is changing a little bit, but needs to change some more. Um, and so, um, you know, the, some of the best astronauts uh, I've met, the ones who've been to space, who are excellent researchers, you know, someone will ask them something in a public forum and they, they're not ashamed to say, I don't know. And, you know, mm. that having someone who's that smart and that accomplished, you know, willingly say, I don't know, you know, it just gives the rest of us permission to say, okay, well, if they're unashamed to not know something, it's okay for the rest of us, you know, um, and, you know, may you make plans to learn that or, you know, say that that's, it's okay that I don't know that. Um, and then speaking to the cultural shift in medicine. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, like we all grew up in those hundred hour work weeks, working 26 hours on call, or, you know, trying to prove that you're the super resident and not going home after call. And, you know, sleep is important. The research is out there. Pilots know this, the military special operations know this, knows this. We're doctors. We tell people that, but we don't preach that. And the other part we don't tell is like, well, how we keep ourselves awake. Um, you know, it's, we're overdosing on caffeine or five energy, five hour energy drinks, um, and it's like, we really need to approach, approach that because at the end of the day, we're here for the patients. We're here to perform at our intellectual and clinical best. And by depriving ourselves of sleep and adding stress, um, you know, that's, we're not achieving that goal. And so then the other conversation that comes into play is that of resilience. And so when I was going through um, my training, it was that of personal resilience, which was really important and instrumental for me. And it was transformative, um, knowing that there's research around this, this is something that we can learn um, and that we can become better at. And there's different models out there. And the one I subscribe to, subscribe to looks at resilience as a five-part model that looks at um, positive self-talk, positive social support networks, mental rehearsal, practicing for the best, worst, uh, and most likely case scenarios, breaking big problems down to stepwise, um, solvable bits and then the impulse control resisting the urge to give into negative emotions and that's really really critical and then as that conversation has evolved the other part of the conversation that has come in brings us back to the beginning and that's of tackling um systemic inequities and making resilience part of the systemic solution so like going back to the origins of how 100 hour work weeks and working 80 hours straight came on and it's not a very healthy story at all um you know saying okay well maybe that one guy who took illicit substances who forged this entire culture that all doctors have to now subscribe to um maybe that's not the best one so kind of de deconstructing that and also instituting uh systemic fixes is, is another part of it I'm about to ask Dr. Payne to recap those five pillars because they are just so epic and so worth talking about. Now, this episode is all about pursuing passion, pursuing creativity, and seeking support systems for busy physicians. And if unanswered questions around your financial planning reality are keeping you up at night or keeping you from fully enjoying life, a financial plan might make a difference for you. Questions I commonly answer with a financial plan are, am I using my corporation most effectively from a tax savings and retirement vehicle perspective? Do I have the right kinds of insurance? Am I going to have enough to retire? How is inflation going to affect my ability to retire? 
These are all questions that I can answer and have answered in a fee-based financial plan. The first step is a simple phone call. Go to the link in the description to book a free, no obligation discovery call if you want to find out if a plan is right for you. You pick the time that works for you for me to call you and we're going to have a conversation and I'll tell you if I think it's the right time for a financial plan for you or I'll tell you if I don't think it's the right time. It's all good. Okay, so let's get back to those five pillars that Dr. Pandya is going to share. I do want to pause and recap for a second because you said something about the five, like if you just say those five again, really like one by one, just so I can make sure that everyone hears them. Yeah, so um, there's multiple models of personal mm-hmm. resilience out there. And when I talk about resilience, I mean that intuitiveness, that mental fortitude, that grit, that ability to bounce back um, when times are tough or to keep going when things are going well, but it's just a frenetic pace. And so there's that positive self-talk telling yourself that, hey, I've got this. There's relying on your social support network saying that, hey, <laughs> maybe I don't have this. Can you help me out? Um, the mental rehearsal saying, okay, how am I going to respond if, you know, a code, a facial trauma and a penetrating brain injury all come in through the door all at once? Um, you know, how am I going to break that down? So breaking things down and then also just giving uh, or uh, resisting uh the urge to give up. So that's impulse control. So not being overwhelmed or not saying this is too hard or, you know, I don't feel like it today. Um, so that's what the impulse control is. Mm-hmm. No, very cool. And I mean, definitely um, I, I read a lot of books around like um, personal development and things like that. And even you mentioned grit, there's a great book out there called grit. That's all about yeah. that. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And um, mental rehearsal. I mean, you're the neuroscientist, not me, but I also, I do, I have read up on the impact of being able to like, sort of mentally predict something. And then when it actually happens in real life, you already have some of those pathways laid down. So it's not like a completely new experience. So yeah, we don't talk about that enough, but um, I did my undergrad in neuroscience. Um, and, you know, the, we don't talk about the activation of the supplementary motor cortex enough. It's like, it makes perfect sense as to why visualizing something the exact down to the exact muscle movements you'll practice why it makes sense because you're priming your brain to be prepared for this you're activating the planning part of that motor pathway so of course visualization is going to make you more prepared mm-hmm. yeah no absolutely and it's it's i mean certainly um yeah it's something i've i've done with like goal setting and things like that where when people are setting goals we get very specific as to how it's going to look how it's going to feel like setting laying down some of those like first off that it's attainable and then also like laying those pathways down so it's like okay this is the pathway i'm going down and like setting up for success so yeah very cool and 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 when you're talking about the shift of culture like i remember like i was pre-med for a very short and brutal period of my life and i did a um a uh, summer internship at a uh, hospital in New York, Bellevue Hospital. And I remember at the time I was very picky about getting enough sleep. Like I was running marathons and I was like, I have to get eight plus hours every night. I can never skip a meal. Like I was very much. And then basically I remember they opened this door and they're like, oh, this is where the residents sleep. And there was like a cot in the corner. And I was like, wait, what happens in here? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. residents sleep here. And we wake them up every hour or two to do something. And I was like, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> and um, and I know the time I remember a resident saying this is a while back now where he said that some of the practices are there only because that's how we've done it all along. Like, and I'm not saying that people don't have to get woken up in the middle of the night, but I do know that like he was saying like some of these extreme practices, it's just sort of like, this is the way we've done it slash almost like a hazing. Like I had to do it. You need to do it too. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is I remember another doctor I interviewed, she said that it's a common to hear around the like 
the meeting rooms or whatever that lunches for the week like a saying like you know taking a break to actually eat a proper lunch like lunches for the week and she's like it's such it's not great it's, we would never tell our patients to like you know yeah. potentially to do this but we do it ourselves yeah it's like you know we we would be priming an eating disorder in our patients if we said that and it's sort of like you know we need to tackle that head on it's saying like so it sounds like you're just projecting and unable to um handle your your manage your time and that's why you don't have time to eat or it sounds like you're not interested in performing at your best um because you know it's definitely like i it, it's uh many who followed my journey know that i grew up in neurosurgery that that was my initial training before transferring to primary care and emergency medicine um and you know that was exactly the mentality it's like only the week will go home after 26 hours if you're not here for 40 hours straight are you even a neurosurgeon mm-hmm. um you know if you uh, if you need to consult an outside service for a critically ill patient and you can't manage them yourselves, are you an, even a neurosurgeon? And it's like, um, that's, you know, you have to focus on the big picture. I am here for patient care and I'm here to perform at my best in achieving that goal. And having that North star, you know, there's times when I, you know, emergency medicine really is, is off the charts, uh, busy. Mm especially post pandemic, especially with the um, crisis in in primary care and just in rural providers. And so it is it is off the charts busy. And there will be times when you know, like you can feel yourself flagging, like I am tired, I've been going for 16 hours straight. Uh, And then just, you know, things that kind of ground me and bring me back to earth are, am I is this in the best interest of the patient? Should I order this test, even though I've already, I would need to poke them again. I would need to get another blood draw. Um, and you know, there are times when I just literally ask myself, am I doing right by my patient? And that'll just make me go back and do the work methodically in the way that it needs to be done to achieve the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that saying of like the North Star of like recentering back to like what you're up to in general and like you know, it sounds like um, almost like, you know, some of the examples you're using are almost like bragging rights of like, oh, how long have I been working nonstop? Or how long has it been since I ate or something like that? And it's not conducive to proper patient care. So like recentering definitely makes sense. Now, um, very cool. No, that's awesome. Now, one of the things I did want to talk about is like your specific journey, like, you know, I feel like you're, you know, this is what I sense from you is like, you're pursuing passion and creativity through a lot of the things you're doing um, that are, um, you know, in tandem with medicine, but also like, you know, very different, like exploration and things like that. Like, was there a moment in time where you, it was really obvious to you, like, this was the path you were going to take of exploration or like, you know, what was there something that just made it clear that that was something you wanted to spend time looking at? Yeah, I started when I was a kid. I grew up during the 90s. Um, Canada's first ever female astronaut, Dr. Roberta Bondar flew to space. And I was just, you know, wowed by that idea I was like wow women can go to space and I just looked at her like she was she's Canadian she's female I'm Canadian I'm female so to be like her I just go be a neuroscientist physician and an astronaut like that's just what you do um and so that put me on that path very early like you can see in my junior high assignments it was all about astronauts and going to space those were the only books I ever um checked out at the library um and then by the time I got to high school I was like well no you need to get serious about this you can't just go get a degree in astronautics. Um, so go pursue neuroscience. And then it was just, there was no question that I was going to do a degree in neuroscience. Um, so that's kind of fueled the path along the way. And then um, when it came time to apply for medical school, I remembered that I was doing this all for space. And I also remembered how insanely competitive medical school was. Like one of my 
really good friends in med school, like had a 4.0, was mm. president of student groups, had like built hospitals in Nepal. And it's just like the sweetest, kindest, most compassionate person you'll ever meet. Like this is someone you want as your doctor. And she didn't even get an interview the first year. And you're just like, like, this is stiff competition. Um, and so I was, I, you know, was planning for contingencies saying, okay, well, what if I don't get into the med, uh, med school? Like, what else can I spend my year doing that I would be equally passionate about? And that answer, of course, was space. And I heard about something called the International Space University. There was a master's program. You could learn all about space. Um, so I applied to both. And I was lucky enough to get admission to both. And after a lot, thinking about it long and hard, I realized that, um, you know, space, you know, I was doing this all for space. Um, let me see if I can defer my admission. The faculty was supportive. They saw the value of the opportunity. And um, that was the beginning of it. I set off doing my master's in space studies. I um, was lucky enough to intern at the European Space Agency's European Astronaut Center and work with their crew medical support office. And then that's the first time I saw you can make space medicine part of your career. And so that was the origin story. And then everything I've done along, along the way just reinforces that love and that passion for exploring, for research, for asking questions, what would this look like in space and building to that body of knowledge. Yeah, very interesting. And like, and I, and I know that like for people listening, like space might not be, you know, obviously like there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, a slice of people who are interested in exploration in space, but I'm thinking like for the, you know, doctors listening that maybe not, that's not exactly what they're up to. I do feel like there's a lesson there around passion and like sort of like taking the steps, even though like maybe the entire path isn't clear, but at least like what's the next step or like what's the next step and then kind of discovering new things. Yeah. And I feel like a part of that is like, you know, I think that's so why I think that's a big part of it is like just taking the next step, even if the whole path isn't clear. Yeah. And, you know, there, I never really was able to coalesce this into a cogent thought until um, someone said to me, you know, always keep an eye out for opportunity. And of course, that person who said that was none other than Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut, former International Space Station commander. And, you know, as he said that, I realized that, yeah, that's what I've been doing all along. Like, when I was in high school, I knew there was an opportunity for medical students to go rotate down at NASA's Johnson Space Center. And I was not qualified at 17 years old being a high school student, but it was um, as an aspirational goal that I kept in my mind for 10 years until I finally became qualified enough to apply for it. And um, then uh, you know, applied and was lucky enough to spend a summer or spend a month down at Johnson Space Center mm -hmm on that aerospace medical elective. And it was just an incredible time. And so, you know, keeping that eye out for what is it that you want to aspire to? How are you going to get there? Um, you know, what what is the next step? Uh, all of that, I think, helps fuel, fuel that journey forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like keeping an eye open for those opportunities, whatever it is that someone's up to. And I can't help but ask in your particular situation, like what is it about space and exploration in particular? Like what's that core sort of, thing that drives you yeah it's just um there there's so much to say but in a word everything you know <laughs> the the vast beauty of space the the mysteries of what it means to be a little pale blue dot in the <laughs> universe um i think it's a fundamental human trait to ask what if, what happens if I go there? What if I do this? What is out there? You know, just to be curious, to explore the scientific return that we get from both direct impacts, such as biomedical research on the International Space Station, as well as indirect 
um, uh, impacts from uh, spin-off technologies, just to be part of that, to be part of one of the greatest, most ambitious, most most ambitious, most complex things that humans have ever done um, and to help propel that forward in a collaborative, positive fashion. Um, you know, every part of space is, it, it just resonates with me at the deepest level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly being at like the forefront of a very, um, it's, it's like, you know, something that's so at the forefront in the sense of like, I'm sure there's just like whole new discoveries and like whole new things. Like there's just such an uncharted thing of space. And then to be a part of like the medicine side of it must be also very much like at the forefront of something that's already at the forefront. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's all these examples of uh, cutting edge technologies that have come from space. Um, Mama Goose pajamas. There are these uh, little pajamas for infants uh, with sensors built in that are used to monitor infants for sudden infant death syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came from monitoring um, uh, ne- lower body negative pressure suits on the International Space Station. Water filtration um, devices used on station with iodine resin filters have been used to provide clean water to remote villages in Kenya. Um, there's indirect benefits. Uh, so the flame retardant um, paint used uh, on uh, the launch pad on the launch vehicles have been used for uh, Formula One racing to keep the drivers safe. So there's a host of benefits. Yeah, I never like it's interesting because when I was thinking about exploration and discovery and a few of the things I've read that you're up to, I thought, oh, are you discovering like things in space that are then turning into medicine on Earth? And I was thinking that's probably not likely like you're not like going to a comet and like finding like, you know, or like going to a planet necessarily. I mean, I'm sure there is that option. But like when you're when you're talking about the technology it takes to pull this off, like, you know, you're discovering new things and new applications for the same technology that's able to do very unique things. It's like, oh, how do we bring this back to earth and use it? Like the example of the monitoring and the flame retardant paint. So that's really cool. I'd never actually like thought of that. Yeah. And then just the direct impact. So I often get asked, well, why is space medicine medicine a thing? Mm -hmm. And and, um, the bottom line is that space is trying to kill you. Like space is this incredibly hostile, austere environment. And when we, when we talk about the challenges of sending humans to space, we talk about the big five. So we talk about altered gravity, increased radiation, isolation, confinement, distance from earth, and then everything else, which falls under hostile environments, whether we're talking about altered day night cycles. So you're getting 16 sunrise sunset cycles within 24 hours up on the station, exposure to lunar dust. So it's a very hostile environment. We know that some combination of these elements cause accelerated aging, uh, increased atherosclerosis, cardiovascular vascular stiffening, insulin resistance. Um, So we need to keep astronauts, we're talking about performance this hour, astronauts need to be performing at their very best. They're in the best of the best, they're professionals, Um, but it is a tough environment and they're scheduled down to the five minute mark. They're away from their creature comforts, from their family and friends. Um, So we need to dissect all of this and understand it to be able to better understand how we can keep these high performing humans high performing. And then the other cool part of this is, as you, many of the listeners may have gleaned, is that the physio- physiology of how humans um, work and how they operate in space is just fascinating. Mm. The NASA twin study found that uh, Scott Kelly, the twin who spent a year in space, had telomere lengthening, which is totally, you know, is totally contradictory to what we know about aging, which uh, suggests that telomeres will shorten. Mm. Um, We know that that microbiome changes. We know that we're immunosuppressed in space. So all of these findings can also help inform what we know about um, 
human disease processes on earth. So there is also that direct research and science benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like certainly, I do remember that twin experiment of yeah the American astronaut that they sent up and brought back, and yeah, I've heard a lot about the the effects of being in space around like you know bone density and strength and muscle and all that stuff. And I will admit that space freaks me right out. Like whenever like I'm a bit claustrophobic, and like I went to like a dark sky viewing thing a bit ago, and the first time in my life I'd seen like Saturn in real time through a microscope through a telescope. And uh, it freaked me out just to see it. I was like, the vastness of it just freaks me right out. Like, I can't nope, even. Nope, I'm out. No space for me. <laughs> yeah, no space for me. I'm going to stay right here. Like, I... yeah, no, I have... claustrophobia pretty much takes me out of the running right off the bat. So, like, there's That's a picture so you have somewhere of you in a, in, a, in, a, in a fighter jet or something. There's like this glass thing above your head. And, and I saw that picture recently. And I was just like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so funny. That was from aerobatic training during ground school um, with the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences, like just an amazing experience. Um, but it's so funny what you're saying about claustrophobic, because I remember being 10 and just standing out on the deck and looking at the night sky. And then I just called back to my mom. I was like, mom, like, it just feels too claustrophobic down there. I need to go out of space. And she's like, you get claustrophobic down here. Wait till you get into a spaceship. <laughs> uh it's it's just like this paradoxical um feeling of like mm. wanting to go to the beyond to see more and see the vast expanse of what the cosmos are but willing to get into an itty bitty living space to get there yeah absolutely yeah totally that's a bit of a sort of a paradox there of like being in the vastness of space inside of something very tiny <laughs> at the same time <laughs> Very cool. No, I mean, thank This is awesome. You've, you've raised so many things. And I'd love, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear just maybe end with a few more things about resilience. Like I, I, you've got so much insight into that and like balance. Um, is there any like other, you know, big tidbits that you have around like attaining balance? Like we've talked about teams and people watching your back and like asking for support and all that, but is there anything else that you'd want to make sure you share? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think having those internal sensors that go off when you're not, when you're wearing yourself down. And so for me, uh, working out daily, if I can, is really, really important. And then of course, that's not going to be able to happen every single day. Um, but if I'm missing that too many days in a row, because I'm overscheduled or because um, the clinical day has gone on too long, if I've done that too many days in a row, that's assigned to dial things back uh, and prior reprioritize things that will recharge me so I can continue to perform. Um, and then, you know, taking time to recharge daily. Um, and that includes being able to say no, um, being able to establish boundaries and knowing the why um, you do to those two things. So reminding myself like I'll feel bad when I say no, because there's some, lots of valid projects and collaborations out there. Um, but I remind myself that I say no to make my yeses count so I can contribute to the projects that I'm passionate about in the way I want to contribute. And it's the same thing with recharging. You know, it comes back to this, this discussion of, um, oh, you know, I've been operating on three hours of sleep. Well, I've been operating on 20 minutes of sleep. Well, I've been on call, you know, 90 days straight. Right. And, you know, it's like, well, you're not recharged then, and you're not going to be able to perform. And so taking time to recharge daily, um, rather than waiting until you're burnt out is the difference between going from a 70% battery to a hundred percent battery and taking less time to recharge more often, um, or waiting till your battery gets down to 3% and, you know, crashing and burning in a spectacular fashion. And um, we're taking a lot of time to recharge at that point. So that's really why it's critical to have those regular 
internal sensors that go off when you're mm -hmm. in danger of that and also recharging regularly. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. Cause I saw something recently that said something like, if you don't take the time to recharge, your body will force you to, um, which definitely is a, is a real thing, right. Of like pushing it too far. And then the body simply just shuts down and says, okay, I'm going to force you to, to slow down now. Um, but yeah, no, definitely like that saying of no and like feeling bad about saying it, but also like you said, I love that, like saying no and why. So the yeses count, which is, is very cool. Cause, um, yeah, I definitely think that's a fairly universal phenomenon of not wanting to say no to things, but, uh, you know, seeing that there's, there's certainly, it can be unsustainable to say yes to everything. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for saying yes to this podcast. I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Great. Till the next time. <laughs>